Good day and welcome to Tabletop Hot Takes. In this show, we examine all aspects of tabletop role-playing games through our particular and peculiar lenses, thoughts, feelings, and of course, hot takes. My name is Professor Funky and I am joined, as always, by... Professor Arya. Together, we've been playing RPGs for over 30 years and have a lot of heavily informed opinions based on that. With all of that behind us, let's get it straight into this week's topic. Resolution systems, do they even matter? Well, I definitely think that they do matter. How much they matter is definitely a point of contention, so let's dive in. Absolutely, yeah. So first, let's start it off, Aria. What is a resolution system for those who are maybe uninitiated into that word? Okay, so a resolution system is the part where you are doing the uncertain action. Your character would like to attempt a thing, and the outcome is not just a success or failure based off of narrative drive or plot or something. Instead, you're, there is some sort of chance of your character failing at something. The most common resolution mechanic is going to be rolling dice and injecting some kind of randomness in that way. Yeah, so in the more traditional systems like Dungeons and Dragons, this is rolling a d20, saying what the number plus whatever modifier is, and then that determining whether you succeed, fail, or some variation in between. Yes, exactly. Okay, I want to open with a hot take. So I am in a lot of online spaces around RPG design for amateurs and professionals, and this is one of the things that a lot of people are very serious about when they're designing their own games because it's kind of an identifying feature. Like when I think of a D20, I think of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't think of another game. So resolution mechanics, as much as they are just a way of resolving chaos or resolving uncertainty, they are also very overblown is the way that I would put it. And I can't tell you how many times I see people online who are like, what do you think of my resolution mechanic? And I'm like, yeah, if the math is easy for you and it does the job that you want it to do, why do you care? Yeah, and to be clear, I am totally guilty of this. (laughs) So I have engineer brain, which is a chronic condition for me. I can't turn it off. The first thing I'm going to do is look at the math. I'm going to try to figure out how stuff is working, what these pros and cons are. I have spreadsheets and documents, and I've made charts and graphs, baby, talking about these probability and statistics and what a normal check looks like and how you bounce everything around that. That was my starting point before I even had a setting hammered out. Okay, so that's actually partially my problem and not my problem. I think that the math is super important. I, as a designer, should be able to tell you, a new game master, hey, your players should succeed 30% of the time at something that they're good at. Math-wise, I should be able to say this thing is true, and I should be able to prove that behind the math of my resolution mechanic. So my problem is when you get into exactly what you did, where you do that before literally anything else. Like, how do you know what percentage of the time someone good should succeed if you don't even know what the game is about? For me, I definitely had these different ideas of lethality and success ratios and how I kind of wanted it to look. I had those ideas in the back of my head going in, but 
You're right. I don't know how that would have ever survived playtesting if I even got it that far. Exactly. Now, I will say you're at least more informed than some people I see online. That's a different problem. Resolution mechanics and the math behind it, like you said, reinforces lethality, meaning amount of character death. It reinforces heroicness, cinematicness, having the ability to partially succeed, or it's all or nothing. All of these, in many ways, define what your game is about. But I think it should be the opposite way, or at least I think most designers should go the opposite way. They should determine if they want a game where partial success is possible and the game is always moving forward, or a game where you mess up once and you're dead through the design of the game, not through the design of the game, a part of the game, the rolling of the dice or the uncertainty. That kind of comes as you go, at least in my opinion. Right. I am actually really interested in that take because for me, the whole reason why I use dice instead of binary outcomes is so I can get the degrees of success and failure from our characters. I had never even occurred to me that we would want just binary outcomes. Like there's usually some sort of play there. I do have a specific example of what you were talking about earlier too. In Monster of the Week, which is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Yep, fabulous, classic. I ran a almost a year-long campaign in it. Right. During that time, I realized that all the combat was incredibly lethal, but that was not because of the rolling of the dice. That was because of the mechanics surrounding it. In that game, almost every time you are doing an attack of a monster, the monster is striking back, and it's just the way that that system works. You're going to be taking damage every little attack you do. Right, unless you get it perfect, but that's so incredibly rare. Exactly. So in that case, the actual rolling of the dice and the math behind that and the elegance of a Powered by the Apocalypse system is not a high lethality system on its own, but the additional rules made it as such, which was thematically appropriate. It's interesting that you bring up Powered by the Apocalypse because as a design, it can go from incredibly lethal to truly non-lethal. There are games within the Powered by the Apocalypse range of design that are completely non-lethal without permission. So Apocalypse Keys is the one that I've read the most of. It's relatively new. And characters do not die unless the player gives permission for it to happen. That's very good. It's good to see a system reinforcing that kind of play. And Powered by the Apocalypse is more of a design philosophy than it is a resolution mechanic. The resolution mechanic in Powered by the Apocalypse is roll 2d6, interpret the results. In Monster of the Week, you have success, partial success, and failure. In Apocalypse Keys, you have failure, perfect success, and overwhelming success, which is success at a cost. And that is something that Powered by the Apocalypse is able to do, partially because the resolution mechanic is so simple, but also because the resolution mechanic isn't really baked in the system. It doesn't matter that you're rolling 2d6 and interpreting the results. Can I actually add a point of contrast here? So there's a game that's pretty classic in the game design space, Lasers and Feelings. So Lasers and Feelings is even more simple of a resolution system than Powered by the Apocalypse, So explain the system first, because I think I'll be able to, after that, provide context for why this and Powered by the Apocalypse are different, and why, even though they're both roll 2d6 interpret the results, 
it is fundamentally changed because of how the resolution mechanic is written and why I would say one is mechanic-based and one is not. So to describe that system real fast, you are rolling between one and three D6s, and then you are comparing it to a number that your character has chosen. Your character number ranges between two and five, and you are either trying to aim above it for one half of your checks, approximately, and below it for the other half of your checks. So if you are going below, that's your laser score. So if you're using science, reason, any of these things, you're trying to roll under your number. So if you want to be really good at lasers, choose a high number. If you're using feelings, then you're trying to roll over, and same thing applies. In this particular case, this resolution mechanic actually allows for more states than I had originally thought, thus invalidating my point. (laughs) Yeah, because it is three dice and it's up to how many meet your condition, basically. Right. I was definitely thinking of like, oh, it is a 1d6, so you would get a pass or a fail. But that's on me for not having my research pulled up at the time. (laughs) There's a lot of games out there. This is why I would say that they're very different, is that lasers and feelings, the resolution mechanic, or the mechanics of the game, really, are fundamentally baked into the system. Without this way of operating of under for lasers, over for feelings, it's not called lasers and feelings, (laughs) and it's not about lasers and feelings. This is a game with a very specific mode in mind, which I think Powered by the Apocalypse is also, but I would say that the mode in mind alters other fundamentals within the game. So there are other versions of Lasers and Feelings, and it's actually based upon a different game called the Double Clicks. But I can make any game, basically, that is thing and thing, whatever those things are. And now my game is about those two things, and apply that same resolution mechanic, and my game is fundamentally about those two things. I will say there is one thing you missed about the resolution mechanic that I think is where your brain was going, and that's that you get more dice if you're better at it. So if you're prepared, you get two dice. If you're an expert, you get two dice. And if you're prepared and an expert, you get three dice. And so some cases, you get just one die, and it's just pass-fail. Right. And in that case, I was going to make the point that Oh, yeah, Powered by the Apocalypse allows you to have these trinary states of your checks instead of a flat binary one. But Lasers and Feelings also does multiple states as well. So, in fact, there's five of them. So Yeah, what I would say, and this is really what I think comes down to the crux of my hot take on resolution mechanics, is I make a game for Powered by the Apocalypse. Let's say I made Masks. Masks is powered by the apocalypse in a superhero setting. So I am the creator of Masks. I decide to power it by the apocalypse and use that as my basis. All that that really means is I'm taking the design philosophy of Apocalypse World, which started powered by the apocalypse, and the resolution mechanic is you roll 2d6 and interpret the results. How I decide to apply that idea of interpret the results is up to my specific game. So Apocalypse Keys, I have failure, perfect success, and overwhelming success. I basically have failure, success, and success at a cost. Or if I'm making Monster of the Week, I have overwhelming failure, failure, success, perfect success. 
So there's different gradients there, how I decide to apply the 2D6 idea and interpret the results. Whereas Lasers and Feelings or any other game in that line or in that idea, I'm taking not just the design philosophy of Lasers and Feelings, but I'm taking that fundamental resolution mechanic. You roll up to three dice and you're either trying to roll above for this thing or below for that thing. And that's it. Everything you do in Lasers and Feelings is either lasers or feelings. There's nothing else to it because that's all the game does. Yes, I completely agree. That is the entire core of the system. There's no fluff around it. Like in the original specs of Powered by the Apocalypse, playbooks weren't even included there. And that's now a defining feature of Powered by the Apocalypse style games. Right. There is definitely an appeal to low complexity, low math. I don't want to think about it. I've just got a cool idea and get something hammered out. You can definitely lift one of those and then use a similar enough thing to make your own RPG. That's probably going to get you something quicker that is able to be played, not even just fun to play, but able to be played, than someone who, like me, goes math first and tries to figure out this resolution system and then has nothing to attach to it later. Right. And I think this is actually a big key to this whole idea of resolution mechanic. There are fundamentally really two genres of resolution mechanics, in my opinion. And that's ones that are informed by the game and ones that inform the game. So a resolution mechanic that is informed by the game is something like D&D. You roll a d20, you interpret the results. I would say the same for Powered by the Apocalypse in many ways. I would say the same for all of the classic games. I would say the same for World of Darkness. Like, you're just counting successes. You're rolling the dice determined by your character sheet and rolling the dice, interpreting the results, and going from there. And then there are resolution systems that inform the game, like Dread or Orate Cole or even let's rob R.J. Malachlaney and Seahor Golden Quill. These are weird mechanics. They are fundamentally not just roll some dice and interpret the results. These are resolution mechanics that define what the game is, why it does what it does, and why we want to play it. And every other game is not that. (laughs) Are there games, in your opinion, that do both? No. That actually makes a lot of sense to me because the games that you just named were endy and weird and nothing wrong with being endy or weird, but they're definitely not traditional. Right. And any sort of game that has a null scenario, has a I fail moving on, like I missed the monster, next guy's turn, I would call traditional. Anything where you can never lose that's untraditional. That's weird and indie. Anything that calls itself a narrative exercise instead of a tabletop role-playing game is probably weird and has a really weird, interesting resolution mechanic. Here's my, not just hot take, but here's my straight-up advice to a beginner designer or a not-beginner designer, and to Aria too. <laughs> if, if you're going to spend time working on the resolution mechanic and making it interesting and special, it better matter that it's interesting and special. Otherwise, why are you wasting your time? So I very much like that advice, and I also want to extend that to players that are playing D&D and they're like, oh, gosh... Something is wrong here at my table. I don't like that I'm having to do these d20 rules every single time or something like that. Maybe it's time to branch out into one of these weirder systems as a palate cleanser or maybe something you really like to play. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many cool things out there. Like, there are genuinely interesting, strange resolution mechanics, at least a few of which we're going to get to in a second, that shake up that formula and specifically make good designers think about ways to mess with their own design, even for more traditional games. I'm going to pull a really relevant example right now to some of the people in this world, which is Matt Colville and MCDM Productions announcing some of the stuff for their new role-playing game. People who have been in this industry for 20, 30 years each or more in some cases who are being informed by these strange, weird games and are making a more traditional game that is slightly altered by the weird stuff that's out there. Dread is absolutely changing the way that people think about horror games. Not changing, it has changed. It was released in 2006. There's been some big changes because of it. And it's made more traditional designers and more big-time designers think about the way that they want to approach a horror game or an anxiety game. And that's really what their footprint in TTRPG space has been. And that's what some of these weird indie games are able to do. Are they going to sell a million copies and be the next Dungeons and Dragons? No, but I don't think they wanted to be in the first place. But they're absolutely going to change the way that we think about games because they're able to go out there and do some weird, crazy shit. Yeah, that reminds me of a video game example of all things. I've heard Ico. Um, are you... Yes! Yes, so Ico, that's your game designer's favorite game. <laughs> yes! Like 1,000 freaking percent. Yeah. I know a lot of people who are in the video game space, and a lot of them mentioned not just Ico, their entire development studio, Team Ico, everything they've ever made. Ico, Shadow of the Colossus, The Guardian, so many things that Team Ico has produced inform the way that designers work today. Right. It's always the weird indie stuff that is pushing the envelope because... Whenever you've been in the space like we have and we've been trying to make games, we've been having systems in the back of our mind, we've been thinking deeply about these things, you'll look for the weird stuff. Yeah. And that really pushes the envelope as much as you can because without the inertia of a system that's already written out and has players behind you, you can do literally whatever. Right. That's actually a perfect segue to some of the weird resolution mechanics. <laughs> I was about to say, I think this is perfect time. Let's let's get into some weird shit we found. Awesome. All right. So as a nice bridge between last episode, which was weird RPGs we found, and now we're talking about weird RPGs we found that specifically have weird resolution mechanics. Where do we want to start, Professor Funky? I think you have way more examples than I do. I only have one. So get into it. That's fair. Okay. So I want to bring up Oracle, which is a two-page RPG founded on Itch. And this has a super fun resolution mechanic. And this is also exactly what you were talking about earlier. I brought it up because, God, it's so weird. So the setup for this is you are a group of heroes and you're guided by an Oracle, which is an almighty one of ancient artifact. And... It is a magic eight ball. <laughs> so the way that this works is whoever has the eight ball must either ask a question or decide a challenge before passing the almighty one on to the next player. So then you 
shake the eight ball, look at that, and then interpret the results of this in a more literal way than we normally say when we interpret results. <laughs> so yes, we have stuff like, if the outlook's not so good, or the reply is no, then you probably failed that check. There are rules for playing this with a d20, but I feel like you'll lose some magic there. 100%. Honestly, if you're playing or a goal and don't have a magic eight ball, go out and buy one. They are $5. <laughs> However, that paragraph has pretty much summed up a lot of what you would need to play the game. There is more here, and it is worth looking into if you're interested in weird stuff. But on the whole, this is a game that is centered around this resolution mechanic, and there's not a lot of additional things you can graft onto that. If you even just think about the sort of things that are in Magic 8-Balls, like, if you got an answer that was concentrate and ask again, okay, cool. Now we have to interpret that. And I, as a player, have to think critically and interestingly and creatively and go like, well, I was trying to kill this monster, but it's saying concentrate and ask again. Then it and I are exchanging blows, and I'm really putting some energy into this next one, and I shake the eight ball again. And then you get, don't count on it, like, ah, shit, okay. Now you can talk through the ending of that fight. And what's actually really interesting here is that in a Magic 8-Ball, there are a lot of tones. Yeah. If you wanted to, you get really into the theme and go, as I see it, yes, is not a yes. It is a yes according to the Almighty One, but it is not. It is certain. Right. Or you may rely on it, or most likely, they're not just yes, no. All right. So I've got other examples if we want to scooch right along. Oh, no. Keep on going. Yeah, absolutely. So another one that I want to talk about is something called Camp Kingdom Come. This one is really interesting because the setting is you are counselors at a Bible camp and the apocalypse starts happening, the seven seals get broken. Okay, that's funny because I was immediately thinking like I don't know any RPG group I've ever been in that would want to run a Bible camp. (laughs) Oh, this is, uh, this can get dark. This is firmly in the horror camp. Okay, perfect. And it actually leads with like, hey, this can go to some places. Watch out. All game masters out there listening to this, yes, safety mechanics are important. I don't care if you're designing or playing. It's important. So what I like about this is that it can be GM-less, and the resolution mechanic is using a deck of cards. It has multiple tables for everything like your equipment deck is literally just two through ace and all four suits there are suit bonuses there's a camper names table if you wanted to draw for those randomly everything is done around these cards very occasionally a d6 but i like that as a gm-less way of doing things so you aren't really adjudicating rules as much It gets around the GM problem of what you do by saying this is A, communal storytelling. There's a level of trust that goes into that. B, we're going to use cards which can be shuffled in a random order, and you will have a more fair way of doing this in a GM-less setting. Absolutely. And being able to state, like, this card represents this, everyone knows that. Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. The rules are stated ahead of time to the point where you don't need a judge. Originally, game masters were called referees for a reason. That's an interesting idea of we're just going to declare all the rules ahead of time. Everybody knows what it is. This means this. That means that. Moving on. Yeah, I like that a lot too. 
it gives a sense of fairness question mark even if the game is not fair it's equally unfair to everyone right and everyone knows by pull this that's what happens yes and that's really a fundamental of GMless systems, I will say. Like, they either forego randomness completely, you just have pure storytelling, nothing more, no resolution mechanic at all, or you have tokens that you can earn or lose to do things, and that's about it. Or, in this case, there's a resolution mechanic that is just defined. That actually leads me into a perfect opportunity to do a segue. I was going to not do it, but you kicked the door wide open for me. All right. Cool. There's a game called Echo. It's GMless for between three or more players. But the way that it gets around the GMless setting here is by assigning information as roles. Mm. So the setting is post mech warrior kind of thing and multiple people play as the children that find the mind of a dead mech pilot that's backed up in a tiny drive oh damn okay so the the way that this works is you get absolute adjudication over certain aspects like the pilot will say my name unit serial number what the last mission was what this place used to be before the war Mm-hmm. or during the war, where they came from. Meanwhile, the kids have absolute stuff on, like, what was happening beforehand? What is the world around us doing? In this case, it's saying that the children, you need to teach the pilot around the world because the Echo Drive can speak and hear, but it can't see. Gotcha. That's a interesting way to get around that GM problem, in my opinion, is by saying, you get these rules, you get these rules, now tell a story, and because you've got this adjudicated, you don't have, no, wait, that doesn't sound right. You don't have people conflicting candidates. It's just a game of yes and, and I kind of love that. Right. There is another GMless game that I think I brought up in one of our previous episodes, but I can't remember the name of right now. Very similar idea. One person is the hero, one person is the world, and one person is the monsters. And it's not strictly a game master role. It's just that you get to write that portion of the storytelling, whatever that means. Yeah, I do think that that's a good way to approach that as well. It's the same kind of idea of separation, but yeah, that's a good way to do it, I think. So, I promise you this one next, and I will do it after that last detour. There's a game called Improv Veto, which is Improv Veto. (laughs) What this game is, a small game where you're just bullshitting around there, but you have like your X card or a veto card or somebody just says, stop, I don't want to hear that in particular. Then you have to improvise something else. You had mentioned safety tools and okay. having an X card saying, no, I can't, I can't do that particular content or that would be upsetting to me if I heard that or something. Yes. That's sometimes really hard to do whenever somebody's in the middle of the scene. So starting with something small and light and fluffy like this, where the only mechanic is continue to talk when it is your turn until somebody vetoes you and tells you to talk about something else. It's very neat because it breaks you into that safety mechanic. And also, as far as resolution mechanics go, Veto is a pretty cool one. I will say that is decidedly more uh, improv game 
than I usually prefer. I feel like I'm just part of an improv group at that point because there's absolutely an improv game like that where someone in the audience or someone in control of the scene tells you to stop and then you have to retry whatever line you just said and keep going until they tell you to stop. Yeah, I guess I need to get more in-person improv in because I wasn't aware of that one. But yeah, sounds like extremely similar content, except with the added benefit of getting more used to using these veto cards, especially if your group is more hesitant about using those in general. It's a good way to introduce your group to a safety tool without making it a thing, which is always tough with some groups to introduce them that idea like, hey, it's okay to hit this button and say, like, can we move on now? But yes, I understand your point that it does stretch the definition of game to its breaking point. (laughs) Literally. Okay, I've got one I think I really want to hit into. The more I think about Ten Candles, it kind of matches what I'm looking for. I'll probably bring it up while I'm talking about this. I want to talk about Dread. Awesome, let's do it. Yeah, if you're big in the RPG space, you've probably heard about Dread. You may not have actually played it, but it is available on uh, DriveThruRPG for 12 bucks. Just search Dread by The Impossible Dream. It's absolutely spectacular. They won an Any, which is the national awards for tabletop role-playing games for innovation, and I actually believe they deserved it. And I don't say that about a lot of things. The resolution mechanic for Dread is a Jenga tower. That's it. To do something in Dread, you have to pull a stick out of the Jenga tower and then put it on top, wait a moment, and if the tower falls, then your character is out of the game. Out of game does not mean dead, but it means out of the game in some way or another. And the biggest thing that this book actually does is define or help define what that could mean. And gives you examples for, like, if you collapse the Jenga tower, what could happen? Like, I was just translating a text, like, what the hell? Now I'm out? How does that even happen? And it helps give examples that are really big for that. And then there are skills within the game. And the better your skills are at certain things, the more chance maybe you don't have to pull anything to do a particular kind of action. Like, if you're a Navy veteran, then you probably don't have to do a pull of the Jenga tower to identify a gun. Now, to shoot a monster, you're probably going to no matter what. But let's say you're an academic, you're just some professor, well, you might have to pull two if you want to pull vault a large chasm, or pull three or four. So that's your escalation, is having to pull more sticks out of the Jenga tower. And additionally, you can get a little bit of character customization at that point too, because you're logically going to be better at this thing. You don't have to pull or you have to pull lower. Yeah, I I completely follow. And that's a great way to add a little bit of variation rather than just you pull a brick. Right, exactly. And if you pull the brick, it ends up on top and the Jenga tower doesn't fall. You succeed. End of story. Describe your success. If you stop halfway through or you don't want to pull one, you fail. There you go. End of story. Describe what happens. But you don't get pulled out of the game only way you're out of the game is if the Jenga tower falls. And so it creates this incredible sense of a dread, haha, but also just general anxiety. Like I've only run this game once and only for a few hours. Unfortunately, one of my players really didn't like it and we sort of ended, but it is this incredible anxiety. I can stare at this tower and go, oh, we're fucked. (laughs) Whoever pulls next is done. So question. What happens after the tower collapses? 
I understand that that character is out of the game, but what happens after that? Well, and so that's the thing. That's up to you, the player, and the game master. And how exactly that happens, completely up to you. If I remember correctly, there's something in the collapsing the tower section that's like, look, if you really can't come up with anything, then that character is a walking dead. They're unable to pull any more blocks, and the next time there is a plausible opportunity, they're gone. Sorry, let me rephrase. What happens to the tower? Like, do you just reset it? Yeah, you just reset it. And so it's always that escalating tension. Yeah, it's not just one person's gone and we end the session. Session can keep going. You can go multiple sessions. I think this is a fantastic system for a one-shot, but I have seen or heard of more long-form games with this, often with, like, big casts of characters where you can just lose a shitload of them and it's fine. And it's great because the game, and this is really where it's well designed, it includes things for the game master to possibly remove blocks. And I want to say there is a form of the game that I remember reading where you can run like a really short session. And when you set the tower up, Dragon Towers are 54 blocks, you remove like 10 of them immediately and just remove them. They don't go on top. They're just out. So now you've got a 44 tower but it's not stouter it's just missing pieces yikes so it could go over it literally any moment wow the reason why i asked that question before was because this gives you an incredible arc of literally rising tension and catharsis followed by another rising tension then the horror of the thing falling your character dying or something terrible happening and then it resets again If you're playing with multiple characters around the table, this is another one of those ones where the outcome is pre-decided. Probably nobody's getting out of this alive, but you might be the last one left. And you've gone through these cycles over and over, and it might even be a relief when that last one falls. It's interesting because you can actually run a game of Dread where success is an option. It actually presents kind of... A few different scenarios. I remember one of them was a slasher film, pretty classic. When it falls, that's when the slasher shows up and gets one of you. Or possibly you can actually run it where one of the PCs is the slasher and nobody knows it. And there even was rules, I remember this because it was really intriguing at the time I really wanted to run it, where no one actually knows who the killer is, not even the game master. Only one person knows I am the killer. Literally no one else does. But it does actually present rules for like a survival horror type thing where like chances are you're going to die. It's a sucky situation. People die in survival situations. But there is the chance for success, just like there is in a slasher film. If you're the final girl, well, cool. We're just going to ignore the tower now. Describe how you finally kill the slasher or something like that because you're the final girl and that's how these stories go. I kind of like that actually. It gives you an alternative at least. You can break the game, and it's all right to. Right. Gosh, like, we'll have to get into styles of GMing later, but I'm definitely more in the rules are suggestions, and you're going to run your table how you're going to run your table. Exactly. Yep. That's a tangent I won't get into now. So that's Dread. It's really intriguing. If you haven't read it, it's literally 12 bucks on DriveThruRPG, and even if it's not for you because you're not a horror person, it is very much a game of horror. It's not for other things, in my opinion. But it is a really cool idea, and it, in my opinion, gets the juices flowing very much. Yeah, you could play it as a quick game, you could play it as a not-so-quick game. 
you can try to play it as a long game that ends up to be a quick game if you're not going to jenga so yeah yeah it's actually really interesting the house we were playing in did have a cat and i have never been more wary of an animal Because if that cat jumped on that table, we were so done. And the game is very explicit. Like, no matter why it falls over, unless the GM is the one that makes it fall over, that is collapsing the tower. Adjudicate that as you will. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. Unless the GM causes it to fall over by removing blocks, then you better figure it out. The cat jumps up and knocks it over. Sucks to suck, buddy. If you get excited and knock your drink into it, sucks to suck, buddy. Like I said, it's a horror game. It is very much a game of dread and of anxiety and of that constant nearing, oh no, like even if it looks solid, you could be stupid and it fall over and you die. Yeah, it would literally be a skill issue at that point, which is hilarious. Yes. All right, I think we've got time for one more. So what do you got? So the last one I've got is it's a fun little one called Let's Rob RJ McKinney and Steal Her Golden Quill. Yes! So this has a whole bunch of things going on. One, it uses a deck of cards for some randomness. The pitch is you're breaking into a well-known fantasy author's house and you're stealing a golden quill from her. Definitely subtext-free. Definitely subtext-free. Absolutely. Trans rights. I love it. So as you are going into this manner, the way that they're doing this is the obstacle is determined by the suit of the card. The type of room that you're in is determined by the face of the card. Mm. So it just gives you a quick random number generator and it gives you some examples on how that would work. The things that I love about this is one, explicitly rotating GM. Nice. So... The way that that works is one person is designated to be the lookout. In fiction, they are away from the action. They're looking for trouble or cops or whatever. But they're also going to be describing the obstacles in the room and they're going to be responsible for the narration in that particular thing in this very collaborative way. Then as you go through these rooms, you will rotate to the next one. Then they will be the lookout and you will be back to being a player. Nice. The resolution mechanic here is that you're trying to hit a target number by rolling d6s, essentially. Okay. But generally speaking, your target number is going to be well above what you can do on your own. Oh. So the baseline target number is like 10. Okay, right. So you can't hit it on 1-6. Exactly, yes. And you can spend more of your action dice, but... Those are actually a limited resource. You have to add obstacles to your path to make those harder for yourself. So those are kind of like your stamina points as well. Mm. But you can also always make a teamwork test. I kind of like that because it is enforcing that you're not intended to go alone and be the badass. You're part of a team. You're pulling a heist. Right, right. Yeah. Also, you can do real quick setting. If people are bracing through it, you can make the next room super difficult for some reason. Or you can ease up if people are really struggling and you've got new players. Right, right. When I was reading about this game, it states very clearly in one sentence, there's no losing the game. It's a cathartic game for people who want to murder a well-known fantasy author who maybe wrote about a wizard school. Not murder, but indispose, incapacitate. Steal their golden quill. Yes, exactly. 
So this is an example of where it's as close as I can think of to where the resolution mechanics are reinforcing what the game is supposed to be about, but there's still a game there with the resolution mechanics and it's still very thematic. But just the little things like, this is a game about teamwork, we are making it to where teamwork is going to be your best option on a lot of these cases. This is a game about being awesome, we're going to give you lots of opportunities to describe how awesome you are. Little things like that make this a really solid game and not just a funny one, though it is a very funny one. Well, fabulous. I think we've covered a lot of thoughts on this topic. There is a lot of thoughts on this topic because it's a very important thing to what makes tabletop role-playing games different from computer games, different from solo games, different from board games. Board games can tell a story but they don't have this thing that really makes it uh, special, random, and unique. Absolutely. And we had touched on this before, where programmatic versus completely freeform and literally limitless because you're operating within the boundaries of a mind. Imagination is our most powerful tool. Arya, take me out of here. I'm losing my mind. Thank you so much for listening to Tabletop Hop Takes. Please tune in in two weeks for our next episode. And if you really, really, really enjoy what we're doing, head over to patreon.com slash tabletop dash hot dash takes. The money we get from that encourages us to keep going and share more of our trash. Because right now, our only Patreon subscriber is my mom. She's throwing a dollar at me. Like, this is less support than I got from lunch money in elementary school. Now... I'm for some bloopers. Oh my god, why? <laughs> you know what the worst part is? That's going to come out on an episode when we're still making zero dollars. So if someone actually goes, I'll see zero. I know. Which is somehow less sad. <laughs> be so funny. I could make, oh god, this is going to be terrible because I'm horrible at pulling things out of my ass sometimes. I could make, you know, really violence versus love. Thanks. Thanks, Funky. That's exactly what you were looking for. Uh, hang on. I'm going to cut this. Wombat, 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 wombat. What were... God, do you even remember what the other one I was saying oh, was? Oh, fuck. Um, lasers and feelings is what we had talked about. Uh, okay. Uh, shit. Shit, I got my notes up. Ah. Uh. Wombat, let's keep on going. I'm looking up so many things this episode, I'm not okay with it. But like their entire development studio. Oh, Sony? That's the publisher. No, no. Team Ico. Really? Team Ico? Okay. Would you say that it builds a sense of dread? <laughs> I think it did that joke already, but yes. Uh, I had to ham it up. That's just my style. You had to hammer it home. You're not wrong. I opened the door.